Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. With Fusionism, the strategic alliance of conservative foreign policy hawks, social conservatives, and economic libertarians knitted together in the last half of the 20th century in opposition to international communism, crumbling after the fall of the Iron Curtain. The modern conservative movement has been remaking itself in effort to address the problems of the current day. One of these seemingly ascendant factions are the so-called common good conservatives. In an article in the October 2020 edition of Reason Magazine, managing editor Stephanie Slade examines what she calls the great liberalism schism that has emerged out of the collapse of fusionism. And for the common good conservatives shedding classical liberal norms, she identifies a new moniker, will-to-power conservatism, borrowing a concept from the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. In this episode, we talk with Stephanie Slade about will-to-power conservatism, who exactly has a claim on the concept of the common good, and what the great liberalism schism means for our politics and society. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined now by Stephanie Slade, who is the managing editor of Reason Magazine and has a piece in the October 2020 issue entitled Will to Power Conservatism and the Great Liberal Schism. Uh, Stephanie, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Yeah, thanks for having me. My first question is, could you define why you've picked the term uh, will to power conservatism to describe this particular segment of conservative thought? Sure. Um, So uh, who I'm talking about when I talk about will to power conservatives, um, it's actually a group on the right that has emerged or at least gained strength in the last couple of years um, who tend to self-describe or self-identify as common good conservatives. They talk a lot about common good conservatism. And there are some some sort of offshoots or variations on that. So, for example, um, Senator Marco Rubio um, likes to talk about common good capitalism. Um, and we had um, the Harvard law professor Adrian Vermeule, who had a big essay in The Atlantic earlier this year talking about common good constitutionalism, a sort of alternative jurisprudence, constitutional jurisprudence that he's putting forward. Um, but, the, but the common thread here is that they have sort of claimed for themselves the term common good, common good conservatism, capitalism, or co- uh, constitutionalism. And what I'm saying in my piece is that um, I think it's very important to, to recognize and to sort of fight back and make a, make a point of saying that these guys do not have a monopoly on the common good. Um, I disagree with basically everything that they are proposing in terms of concrete policy prescriptions. Um, and yet I am still a, a sort of, you know, practicing faithful Catholic who is deeply concerned about the common good and whose beliefs in, in sort of um, uh, classical liberal values that I would defend, that they, would, that they are coming out against, 
I think are rooted in my concern for the common good. So I, so my point is that they do not have a, a monopoly on this term and therefore we should be, uh, the, the term common good conservatism is, is actually quite confusing. It obscures what it is that they're in favor of. And, and what I'm pointing out or what I'm making the case is that they're in favor of um, strong, robust government in the hands of conservatives that you, that, and having conservatives be not afraid to use the, the sort of the long arm of the state, the coercive power of government to enforce their social conservative and you know sort of conservative traditionalist um, social preferences on the country. And to uh, one phrase that you'll you'll hear sometimes is to sort of reorient society to the highest good. Um, the idea being that we sort of lost track, we lost lost sight of our Judeo-Christian heritage, and um, people can't be trusted to. Uh, find their way back. They need to be. It needs to be done coercively by the state. I'm very much against this, and so uh, and I think that that is also actually at odds with the common good. I, I don't agree with their idea that this. I, you know, I, I'm just strongly um, object to the idea that 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 the things they're in favor of should be should be associated with the term the common good. Do you think your objection is primarily process based, or do you think you find yourself in disagreement with? where the ends are for the, these people who are expressing this idea of the common good. Um, so that say they have, you know, X vision of the world in terms of where they think that it should be is the objection that you hold primarily in the, um, objecting to the, using the coercive power of the state to get us there? Or do you think you also have disagreements with their vision of what the common good is and where we should be heading? It is a little bit of both. Um, in a sense, I think we're, we can all be in agreement, whether, whether you're you know, religious or not, whether whether you're sort of politically conservative or not, in a sense, we are really all in agreement that the common good is about the conditions that promote human flourishing. So, in that sense, we all have human flourishing as the end that we are hoping to to achieve. And the disagreement is about means, right? And how do we get there? What's the best way to accomplish that end? Um, but in another sense, um, I think there are there are certain aspects of what the sort of a good a good life or the good society looks like where there is some legitimate disagreement. There's certainly disagreement between left and right, um, but even on the right, and I do consider myself to be a part of the sort of political right broadly construed, um, I, I think that freedom and individual liberty is an incredibly important and central component of the common good. So a society in which people are not free, to me, cannot possibly be anything close to the ideal society, the society that I want to, you know, when I think of the common good, um, when I have this sort of idea or vision in my head of what that looks like, it must include freedom and individual liberty. And for some of these common good conservatives, it just seems like they have decided that that is a thing they're willing to trade away to get other things they care about more. So in that sense, I object. I would object to even the sort of vision that they have that they're trying to work towards. And then beyond that, I also very strongly um, object to many of the of the sort of means to the end processes as you're describing. So there's a rejection of um, sort of free trade and individual uh, sort of economic liberty, free markets, there tends to be a much higher tolerance and support for, you know, things things like uh, legislation, socially conservative legislation. So, um, not just saying that uh, people should be free to practice their religion as they see fit, but essentially that the religion should be written into laws in various ways. Maybe blue laws. You can't buy alcohol or even open your stores on Sundays. Um, maybe rolling back no fault divorce. Maybe um, cracking down on pornography. 
um, things like that, that, that would actually involve passing laws, not just encouraging people to behave sort of morally, but trying to uh, ensure that they are bringing the state into that question. So from their perspective, allow me to hypothesize here, take the question of um, pornography. If they view the idea of what we're trying to do is, you know, we not only have a a life here on earth, but we have the eternal life afterwards. And in trying to ensure the most number of people get to that, um, that they would want to use the power of the state to to the best ability that they can uh, block people from something like pornography that would put in jeopardy a getting into the, you know, th- that into heaven and the eternal life. Um, would the argument be then that you don't get any points for conscripting people into acting virtuous and that virtue must be freely chosen? Because um, I guess I suppose the argument in counter to that would be um, that you're still, you know, a lot of people's eternal life is in great risk because you are not going to be able to persuade everybody that you're right on that subject. Definitely. I do believe that virtue freely chosen isn't really virtuous. So I, I, am a, I mean, I think that that's just a fact. And um, so there is a real limit to what you can do coercively if, if what you generally are concerned about is sort of the eternal salvation of souls. Um, co- uh, coercion is not, I think, an effective means to that end, even sort of on their own terms. If, if you... Uh, if a person wants to behave, you know, immorally and you just forcibly prevent them, you know, and you override their free will and their free choice uh, and forcibly prevent them, they're not being virtuous then. And, and it's, uh, it's, you know, I just think that there's, um, they have, there's not a lot of credit due to a person, you know, who, who only abstains from uh, vices or, or from sin you know, because they're afraid for their lives or afraid of being locked in a, in a cage. Um, but there's, there is more to the question than that, actually. Um, one, one aspect of this, I think, is that um, virtue is a learned behavior. And if no one is ever presented with the option to make a choice for him or herself about whether to choose um, to behave virtuously or not, um, then, then th- there's sort of a no ability to learn that. There's no ability to learn virtue. Um, and so I think like, you know, it's certainly true that if pornography were banned and it were really strictly enforced by the state, uh, many fewer people would probably, um, make it and consume it. That's true. Um, but there would also just be that most of us would never have to think about why that's important and why why is it the right choice to to abstain from that and you know what is it that what is the end that we are sort of teleologically as they say you know made for and what are we supposed to be um, forming our conscience for and toward in this life uh, those questions would never have to be answered if we were never faced with the with the, the you know the need to make these choices and I think that there's a real I mean. Again, I'm speaking of the Catholic, so I tend to always look back as part of my lodestar to what does the Catholic Church teach, what is Catholic social teaching, what's in the catechism of the Catholic Church. But the church is clear that this is what free will, I mean, God gave us free will for a reason. Um, and, and this is part of that reason, I think. Almost in the sense of without evil, then one can't really know what good is. Absolutely. So you're borrowing from Frederick Nietzsche with this description of will to power conservatives. Um, what caused you to make that connection to Nietzsche's concept of will to power? It's not a perfect um, term. I was, I played around with a few other options, 
um, before deciding to propose this as an alter possible alternative to common good conservatism. Um, the idea, I mean, the point that I wanted to draw out is that if you read these folks who identify as common good conservatives, in their own words, they are openly, explicitly admit that power, gaining control of power, seizing control of power, and being willing to use power, and being comfortable and confident in the use of you know, state power is a big part of what they're all about. Um, so, and I, in my piece, I quote a whole bunch of examples of this and there are, there are many more, but so for example, we have, um, Adrian Vermeule in his essay talks about quote, strong rule, um, and said that the government is tasked with enforcing duties of community and solidarity in the use and distribution of resources. Um, we have, let's see, um, Hillsdale College's David Azarod, who wrote that conservatives need to learn to be more manly, quote, manly combative, comfortable using the, the levers of state power to reward friends and punish enemies. Um, the Claremont Institute's Matthew J. Peterson writes that we, um, conservatives must not merely make arguments, we must act on them, wielding, quote, regime level power in the service of good political order. So they're using, you know, they're really focused on the idea of needing to gain and, and keep control of the levers of state power and use it to to achieve conservative ends. So I don't think it's a, um, I don't think it's unfair or I'm projecting to say that this is I think the thing that I think really differentiates them from the other side of the schism, which is people on my side, which are the sort of classical liberal conservatives. Those of us who believe very deeply in the importance of individual liberty, um, individual rights, the, a minimal state, you know, that's those sorts of things. Well, one of the things I find interesting is the, progression of term confusion that we seem to have. Several years ago, uh, I would recall people on the, who are classical liberals on the more libertarian side of things, the desire to reclaim the term liberal in the classical sense, and not as we understand it now, mostly as a synonym for progressivism. Um, what I find interesting is, you know, kind of the people out there like um, uh, Patrick Deneen springs to mind, who now seems to want to I don't even think that reclaim is the right word for what he wants to do with conservatism, because in an American sense, conservatism has really never been defined the way that he seems to want to define it. His definition strikes me as a far more European understanding of conservatism. And more or less having conservatives say, or this group of conservatives now say, go ahead and take the term classical liberal or liberal because that is actually what you are as they try to redefine the term conservatism. I'm curious what you think about that in general and if you think that these projects really can ever be a success because uh, amongst all the people I've known who've wanted to call themselves classical liberals, they – just seem to create more confusion amongst the kind of general population who understands liberal to mean one thing when they mean it in a very different way. And now it seems the same with the term conservative. Yeah, there's definitely confusion. And it is it is really a, a sort of un unfortunate historical artifact of sort of the American project that we have, you know, evolved or chosen to use the word liberal to mean just mean like left of center. Whereas in the rest of the world and historically liberal meant, you know, Desire, you know, believing in the presumption of individual liberty. That's all that meant, that it meant. And, but right now at this particular interesting moment we're at where there is this schism even among conservatives and, and a similar thing is actually happening on the left between liberal and illiberal um, leftists. 
you kind of need a word to just to, to that that isn't just getting at left versus right, but is actually talking about um, within either of those two traditions. Are you do you know do you place a high degree of value on individual liberty, or are you willing to trade it away, sacrifice it in exchange for other things that you want more? Um, and so on the left, you have socialists who essentially think that, you know, equality is more important on, on the right. You have, um, you have these sort of what I'm calling will to power conservatives who think that the sort of, uh, end of virtue and, and, uh, the Judeo-Christian values are more important. And in some cases you also hear them talk about order and ordered society and sort of security is more important and therefore, um, you know, liberty and, and what they like to call, radical uh, individualism or radical individual autonomy should be sacrificed. Uh, yes, I agree that there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of confusion because these words don't all just have one meaning that's clearly understood. Um, but we do need a way to, to differentiate. I, don't, I haven't thought of a better one. I haven't kind of spent some time thinking about this. I haven't come up with a better word besides liberal or classical liberal to describe those of us who think individual liberty is important. And in a, in a, in a, I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not wedded to that term for the sake of, of the word itself. I just think we need to be able to differentiate and I don't know how else to do it. By your lights, what do you think is driving this schism about liberalism? That, you know, I, I talked with Matthew Continetti on an episode of Act in Line not that long ago about that there have always been um, these elements of the political right who have been more skeptical of the Enlightenment, of liberalism, um, but they really haven't seemed to hold as much market share as they do now. And as you mentioned, we're not just seeing this as an artifact on what we would call the political right. We're also seeing it um, on the political left, that you get these situations of you know, the strange new respect uh, feeling where, you know, I would read Matt Taibbi from Rolling Stone, you know, eight years ago, and he would drive me crazy. And I read him today, and I think he makes a lot of sense, um, partly because the subject matter has shifted, but partly because you have He's talking from this perspective of a more you know, enlightenment liberal understanding of the world. Right. Um, so you have these natures of shifting coalitions that are happening underneath all of this as well. But wh- where do you think that this um, th- this is coming from, this schism that we're seeing about liberalism on both the political right and left? I don't have a very satisfying answer as to the underlying causes. You're absolutely right. And, and- Matt Continetti is right to point out that this isn't like, it didn't just emerge out of thin air. Um, the, one of the reasons I like the, um, the sort of visual of um, a schism along a fault line is that a fault line was there all along, right? The fault line was always there, um, but now we're just seeing it open up in a way that it, it wasn't, and it's more, it's sort of more apparent to us. Um, and it's actually causing people to have to choose one side or the other in a way um, that they didn't necessarily have to before. I mean, there's, I think something, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that America is, and has always been from its founding, a liberal country in the, in the sense of the word that we've been, that we've been talking about. So, uh, Amer- you know, the sort of American founding was a classical liberal project. Um, George Orwell famously wrote in an essay that all Americans are liberals of one sort or another, um, whether you know, even conservatives in America, he said, were liberals because the American project, the thing that the, that the conservatives in America were hoping to conserve was itself a classical liberal, individ, you know, uh, sort of, uh, yeah, just project experiment. Um, so, so I do think that we are, this is a, a fascinating and sort of tumultuous thing that's happening right now to, to see a large chunk of people getting a lot of attention 
while agitating for a rejection of those values that have always sort of, for a lot of us, um, represented what it means to be an American. Um, and, and I don't know, I don't really know what, what the cause is at this moment. Um, and I don't, I'm also not hundred percent convinced that this is the future of conservatism, for example, or even the future on the left is the sort of illiberal left, the, the folks on the other side of this because I'm on that side. Um, but I know that they're getting a lot more attention, uh, right now than they have in a long time. And there, there does seem to be at least somewhat of an, more of an appetite for people calling for the use of power in this way than there, than there was even just a few years ago. And certainly going back to sort of the Reagan era or um, even further back than that. I'm curious what you think of this concept. So in the past, we've had both uh, Yuval Levin and Jonah Goldberg on this podcast about their respective books, Yuval Levin's A Time to Build and Jonah Goldberg's Suicide of the West. Um, and I see a connection there between the points that I think each of them are making. That In Goldberg's book, he raises the point about you know, the, the, the politics that would exist outside of what he calls the miracle, essentially what we're talking about here in, in liberal democratic capitalism, is tribal. Um, and it really is based in our human nature to live in those kinds of tribal ways. And when you connect that with Levin's, uh, Yuval Levin's thesis on our crumbling institutions, that it's these institutions that really do teach us to embrace what is this unnatural way of living that we have had for the last 300 years or so in this you know, liberal democratic capitalist miracle, as Goldberg calls it. How much stock do you put in the idea that it is these eroding institutions in American life that are contributing to, not causing, but at least contributing to the circumstances we're talking about and this rejection of liberalism as feeling unnatural and as a result, people want to get away from it and move to something that feels far more natural to them? No question. I think that that's definitely a huge part of what's happening here. The real disagreement between um, the Patrick Deneens and the, and the folks on the sort of post-liberal or will to power side um, and, and people like me are um, sort of the, the, the way that we would call, uh, draw the, the causal arrow, you know, the direction of the causal arrow. Or I think if you were to ask um, Adrian Vermeule or Patrick Deneen or any of these guys, they would say, well, um, liberalism was unstable from the conception we built a whole, a whole country and a whole society on these classical liberal um, principles, and it it couldn't, you know, it could never end anywhere but with uh, the sort of collapse of the institutions and the sort of chaos that we that we're experiencing now. This very much is Patrick Deneen's thesis yeah. that liberalism planted the seeds of its own destruction. Right, exactly, and so they would say liberalism causes um, crumbling institutions, and therefore the only thing left is power. Right. Um, I would, I think I would probably say if I were going to try to tell a story of how we got to this point where absolutely I'm in agreement, our institutions are in trouble, um, you know, church attendance down, family formation down, all kinds of uh, sort of the intermediary institutions or civil society institutions that have, have been such a, a hugely important part of the American experiment for, you know, two and a half centuries, um, they're struggling. But how did that happen? Well, I think a big part of the story actually is that they have been crowded out by an ever-growing government. So when you, for example, have um, 
have a minimal welfare state, then you have a huge incentive for communities to solve problems on their own and to band together and to work together and to invest time and resources and energy into solving problems in their communities. When you have a robust and generous welfare state, then there's a sense, well, I'm paying taxes. It's somebody else's responsibility. Um, they're far away. It's not my job to worry about that. Also, they're professional. It's professionalized. It's sort of rationalized, as they say. Um, they probably know better than I do how to go about fixing this problem, so I don't need to worry about it. And so our institutions atrophy, and they're starved of resources. They're starved of attention. Um, we become more atomized, more, you know, lonely, more separate, separated from each other because we're not embedded in the sort of the mesh of these institutions uh, the way we once were because we don't need to be because the state has stepped in and, and we, we don't think that that's our job anymore. I mean, I, I really think that the, the causal arrow goes the opposite direction than the way these guys would probably would say it does. Do you think that if we were to pull back on the size of the state, like that, that it would lead to people recreating or creating new institutions that would answer the problems like that? Or do you think that, you know, is, is there another element of it that is missing? Is, is it just simply a matter of curtailing the state and the rest will take care of itself? Or is there something else that needs to be an ingredient in that uh, equation as well? There's nothing simple about it, unfortunately. I mean, it's always easier to cause a problem, to destroy something than it is to build it back up again. And so I don't think it's as simple as saying, well, if we if we cut, you know, if we eliminated the welfare state, if we slashed and closed down huge subsets of government. And by the way, I'm a small libertarian. I'm very much in favor of reducing, dramatically reducing the size and scope of government. Um, but I think if we did it tomorrow, just one fell swoop, shut it all down, um, would, would everything, would sort of society heal itself over, overnight? Absolutely not. It would be chaos in the short term. And, and that's not the way you go about solving problems. I do not think that's the answer. Um, the thing that's missing, I mean, the thing that, it, that is required and the thing that there's no substitute for is the hard work put in at the individual level by individuals and families and civil society institutions, you know, people coming together, forming institutions and, and stepping up into the breach you know, and that's the thing that people need to be willing to do. And we don't have to wait for uh, government for government to go away or for, for these um, the, the things that the aspects of government that I think are, are have have crowded out private problem solving. Um, if individuals are persuaded that the way to actually, you know, um, address the things that we're facing as a society today has to happen at the individual level and at the community level. They can step up right now. They could start, and I think we have to sort of rethink our our, our sort of mental approach to problem solving. Uh, this is where the great, I mean, the sort of um, wonderful concept of subsidiarity is very helpful. I think we have lost sight of the fact that problems are supposed to be solved uh, at the level closest to where the problem exists. Um, so I, I just think that the, the, it's not as easy as. It's not as easy as like we just close down a bunch of um, welfare programs and close down a bunch of federal government agencies and suddenly everything is going to be better tomorrow. It's absolutely not that simple. It's going to require a sort of, um, I don't know, a, a bottom up great awakening of sorts, I think, for us to get out of this, this very deep and dark um, problem that we found ourselves in. It seems to me that a lot of people who are advocates of the worldview that I think you and I share have failed to speak of it in moral terms, um, in 
making the arguments for it, that a lot of the arguments that have been made for free markets, for free trade, um, for the kind of economic ideas that we believe are quite often utilitarian arguments um, that don't quite seem to uh, land with people in the same way that making moral arguments about this uh, strikes me as doing. And we have these people now as the, the will to power conservatives who are stepping into the breach here who seem to me to be making overwhelmingly moral arguments about their approach to solving these problems. Do you think advocates of this worldview that we seem to share should speak of it in more moralistic terms or speak of the moral dimension that exists to it, in the, which I think you've done a pretty good job of in the way that you've described. But there aren't as many advocates of that that I see out there um, as perhaps I think would be helpful. I think we need to do both. Um, and I actually explicitly in this, this short piece that we've been discussing, um, I, I talk about what is the common good as I see it. And I make the point um, that individual liberty, I see individual liberty as both a component of the common good, a thing that needs to be accounted for. You know, again, a society that isn't free cannot possibly be described as having attained the common good. It's a sort of, it's a, it's a, it is itself part of the thing that we're working towards. And then I also talk about, I talk about individual liberty and classical liberalism and, and sort of freedom as um, conditions for other aspects and other components of the common good. So uh, you know, I want material abundance in a society. Any any sort of vision of an ideal society that we might that we might have surely would involve things like material abundance, people not going being forced to go without, um, rule of law, sort of um, equal equal justice under the law. Um, this is why we believe in due process. It is it is a means to an end. It is a condition or a comp- uh, yeah, it is a requirement. Now um, necessary, not sufficient. I don't think it's enough to say if everybody has, if the justice system works and everybody has food on the table, then we have achieved the common good. There's there's definitely uh, larger dimensions than that for me, for many of us, I think. But to say necessary but not sufficient, it, it's still necessary. It's still very important. And, um, and in, anyway, I, I think thinking about it as both part of the thing we're striving towards, individual freedom as part of the thing we're striving for uh, towards, as well as uh, uh, a means to an end or a condition for other other good things. It, they're both true. I don't know how to separate them or choose one or the other or say we should only be talking in terms of, um, you know, moral but not but not utilitarian or not consequentialist. Uh, ultimately, it's all it's all of the above for me, and so that's the only way I know how to go about talking about individual liberty. And I, I think it never hurts to to use all of the sort of arguments and all of the weapons that are at our disposal. Stephanie Slade is managing editor at Reason Magazine and author of the piece from the October 2020 issue, Will to Power Conservatism and the Great Liberalism Schism. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Eric Cohn.